cruising through in the book of Hebrews. We're actually in Hebrews chapter 10. Before we get to that, I just wanted to ask you guys a question. And we're actually going to interact around this question. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what is the thing that you nostalgically look back on, like previously in your life, and you're like, I wish that we could do that or we had that again. Does that make sense? Like when you look back, what is that nostalgic thing in life that you look back on and go, I wish we had that. So let me give you an example, and then you guys can, can shout them out to me. Probably, the, probably one of the biggest ones, because I'm really vain and I um, am lame when it comes to food, is I miss McDonald's French fries of the 80s. Anybody else that was alive during the 80s miss McDonald's French fries in the 80s? Okay, so you're right with me. You understand what we're going after right now? All right, so what, what sort of things do you guys nostalgically look back and said, I wish we had that again? Here we go. Just shout them out. 80s music. I'm with you, Yolanda. All right. Anybody else? Records. See, they're coming back, though, you know? The whole vinyl thing is coming back. What else? Old Coke. So, you know, I thought somebody might bring that up, and I was going to ask, is it Old Coke or New Coke or Today's Coke? Like, who even knows what the real thing is anymore? Nobody even knows. Do you guys remember the Pepsi challenge? Okay, yeah, I remember that. Anybody else? What about what about our younger generation that weren't actually even born in the 80s or the 70s or be, or before? How about you guys? What was nostalgic for you? Huh? All right, so what what do you huh? Pogs? I don't even know what that is. All right, see, this is good. This is good. All right, wait, one more. What was it? Southern Baptist potlucks. That's so funny. What do you What do you not miss? How about when you look back at life and you go, I don't miss any of that. This or this other thing. Leisure suits. Did you have a few there? No. Okay. You didn't like them on other people. All right. All right, what else? Perms. Yeah, I liked my wife's perm when she had it back in the 90s. It was nice. It's part of what sealed the deal for me, but good. What else? Anything else, anybody? How many guys um, don't miss dial-up? How about that on, for the internet? Or how about a time uh, with no Netflix? Um, uh, you know, or back when uh, internet came to you on a CD, CD, like they sent an AOL in the mail, they sent it to you, and that's how you got connected. Anything else anybody not miss about the past? Nothing. That's it. Good. You know, we've never really done interaction at the beginning before. This is all new. I'm just kind of winging it this morning. Just kidding. So, uh, you know what? What's funny about this is sometimes we can be really nostalgic, can't we? We can look back and go, oh, man, if, if life was really only like how it used to be, if, if only like my kids could jump on their bicycles, and you kind of do this in Petrie City, and just drive all over town and not to worry about people kidnapping your children and things like that. Like, that's how I grew up in this little town. My parents were like, can I go, come back, be back by supper kind of thing, and we would just disappear for hours and hours, like a half a day we were gone. 
And so there's things like that we look back and go, we're kind of nostalgic about. And then other things that we go, you know what, I'm not nostalgic about that. I don't miss that one single bit. I do not miss black and white TV. I do not miss my dad telling me, hey, Jason, can you go up to the TV and turn the channel for me? Because we didn't have a remote. You know, so I had to like, every time he's like, go up there, click three, six, seven, eight. And I'd be like, okay, we got it. And I'd take two steps away and he'd go, no, 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 go back there. We're going to go to 10. We're going to 10. And we would turn the dial to 10. You know, like some of you have no idea what I'm even talking about. But there are things about life that I am not nostalgic about that I don't miss at all. But the reality of the people in the book of Hebrews is they were dealing with some things that they could actually, uh, had to make a choice. They were at a crossroads of, deci- crossroads of deciding, do I want to be kind of nostalgic about all this? Uh, Do I want to be nostalgic about the old covenant, the old testament, the old sacrificial system that has been around for thousands and thousands of years? All my friends are doing it. Like, do I embrace that? Or do I embrace the new covenant, which is Jesus died for me and my sins have been paid and I can move forward with this new reality. And so that's what we're really going to be talking about this morning we're going to be talking about this idea of this old and new covenant and the crossroads of belief. So we're going to start out here in verses uh, 1 through 4. And uh, if you want to open your Bibles, you can do that. That would be awesome if you have it on your phone. Uh, we actually use the uh, ESV version, so you can pop that up on your phone. If you don't have that, there's actually a Bible in front of you that you can follow around to. And we would love for you to do that. So to get us going, we're going to talk about uh, verses 1 through 4, this idea of belief in imperfect works. And so we're going to get right to it. Verse 1, here it goes. The law is the only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So Jamie's talking, talked about this the last few weeks. If you haven't been here, this, is, this whole sermon kind of stands on its own. It, it's okay that you've not been around for the last few months. It's not a big deal because this thing is going to like take off and land all in about 30 minutes here. And so this idea of being a shadow, Jamie really unpacked this idea that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was fine and dandy for that time, but there was something that was coming later on that was new and improved and much, much better. And that's what this is really talking about. So the verses continue on to say, for this reason, the Old Covenant of the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly and repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And so these verses are talking about a few things. They were saying that the law was inadequate to save. Okay, so the law was inadequate to actually take your sin and remove it forever. It was never, ever satisfied. It was kind of like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and you just keep on eating forever because you're never satisfied. That's what the law was like. It was this thing that had this appetite that never, never was full. And so it never, ever solved sin. So why in the world have it? I think that was the first question asked. Well, why have the old law? Why have the old sacrificial system? Why even have that exist in our lives? And it did really three things here. Here's what it did. One, it pointed out our sin, which is a huge thing. And Jamie's talked about this and how the law was kind of like a mirror. It went up in front of your, up in front of your face and it showed you all the things that you did wrong. The second thing it did is, is it really delayed the judgment of God. It, it took the law and it said, okay, uh, we need you to do these sacrifices, or God's saying, I need you to do these sacrifices as, as obedience in a, and also to really cover your sin for a time. Because as soon as you leave this place, you're going to commit another sin. Or on the way home, you're going to do something else wrong, and you're ne- going to need to come back over and over. 
But it did communicate the third thing, which is it proved the faith of the people. It proved that their faith was real. It proved that they were looking for something greater beyond themselves, and that was God. And so how do we know that the law didn't have any sort of permanence on sin? So let's go to verse 2. Here it is. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? So it's talking about the sacrifices. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is possible for the, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the sacrifices would have ended. Like there would have come a time where you could say, you know, if, if this whole system was adequate and this whole system was something that really took care of sins, you could say, okay, well, this is measurable at that point. I can go and I could sacrifice 100 animals. And, and then from that point in time, I can quit. And I can just rest that I've done enough, right? And I think that is the rat race of the law. This law that sin keeps coming back in, and we keep needing to make sacrifices for our sin. And it goes around and around and around. And so these people, had the law stopped, had the sacrifices been enough, they would have been what we call positionally perfect. So there would have been enough sacrifices where God would have eventually looked at them and said, you know what, you've done enough. It's okay. You don't have to do anymore. And so therefore, you are positionally, in my eyes, you're paid up. And you're perfect. And you're not longer, no longer guilty. But that wasn't true either. The verses that we just read have said that's not the case. And so they came, came, went on and on and on. And the law was in, inadequate to do lasting work in the life of a human being. But here's the cool thing about the law. The piece that I love the most is that every single time a sacrifice was made, everybody understood that there will be more. But everybody was also looking forward to a time where they would end, that the Messiah would come and would take care of this and would fulfill the law completely, and they could stop. And so every animal that was sacrificed, and if, uh, when you think about this, you think about thousands and thousands of years of the Israel nation, the nation of Israel, doing these sacrifices and these animals being killed over, probably millions and millions of animals dying. But all that, every single time, was pointing to Jesus. As you sat, an animal was sacrificed, people were looking going, something better is coming. And so instead of relying on the shadow, people should know that there was something greater. The reality was going to come. Which leads us to belief in the perfect work. So all these things were a choice that people made. They could believe in the old covenant. They could believe in the old imperfect things, or they could transition to the new thing, which is Jesus. Verse 5 goes like this. Consequently, when, G when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scrolls of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, and these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And so here Jesus comes on the scene, and he's being sent by God to do away with the first, to do away with the thing that can't really have lasting effect, and to provide something that will last forever. And that's what we're going to unpack. Ken Hughes put it this way. Wouldn't be a sermon without a Ken Hughes uh, po- uh, quote right here. So here it is. The fact was, though God had instituted blood animal sacrifices, so God is the one who set this up in Exodus 24, he had never been pleased with them and did not see them as ends. He had established them as object lessons to instruct his people about the sinfulness of their hearts, his hatred of sin, the fact that sin leads to death, the need of an, of an atonement, and his delight in those whose hearts were clean and obedient and faithful. But there was nothing appealing to him about the sight of a dying animal. God had no pleasure in the moans and death throes of a lamb or a bull. And what he did find pleasure in was those who offered a sacrifice with a contrite, obedient heart. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he puts aside the first to establish the second. He puts aside the imperfect to establish the perfect. And it says right in there, in those verses, it says right that God wasn't satisfied with that. That the plan all along, all through the whole testament, was always pointing to Jesus. It was always pointing to something greater and something better. Verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. That's a key verse. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. You guys probably already have heard that little term. The Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. That's found uh, in John 1.29. It's up on the screen behind you. It's when Jesus is walking down the hill and John the Baptist is in the water and he sees Jesus and this is how he responds. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. And so that, that imagery of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, it connects all the way through the Old Testament back to Abraham and Isaac and then all these, all these connections. It goes on and on and on. And G, what he's saying here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this stuff. Jesus is the one who's adequate to pay for our sins. Jesus is the one who can satisfy what the law requires, which is perfection. This is a huge, huge turning point. And so he didn't come to die for himself, but instead he died to make you and me holy. I always think it's interesting when I read that verse and it says, uh, let me go back to it. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't know if you're anything like me, but a lot of times I don't really feel very holy. Y'all feel holy? And I don't think what he's saying here is that as Christians, as people who believe in Jesus and have uh, accepted Jesus as part of their, like, their driving force in their life, I don't think he's saying you are perfect. What he's saying is, is that you are positionally perfect. Now let me explain what that means. It means that when God sees you, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus and God sees you, he does not see you 
and the old covenant. He does not see you and your old works. He does not see you and the things that you did back, but rather he sees Jesus and that sacrifice that was applied to your life. Just like in the Old Testament, when people would sacrifice a bull, they were sacrificing that bull for themselves, right? As a substitute for their sin. It's exactly the same thing. So when God sees us, he actually sees Jesus. He actually sees the death and resurrection, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world applied to our hearts. And that is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's why this passage can say that we are made holy. Because in the mind of God, he's like, you're holy because Jesus was holy on your behalf. Y'all with me? I think it's a very, very important piece of what we're talking about this morning. And so one sufficient, complete sacrifice ended all of that. And so the people came to a crossroads, right? So back in those days, they had the decision to make. They could choose to believe in the old covenant, or they could choose to believe in the new covenant. They could choose to to believe in the thing that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Think of the pressure that they experienced being a Christian and still being around all your Jewish friends who are still doing sacrifices. Okay, And likely this group of people were the first group of people who had not actually seen Jesus with their own eyes. So they're the first group of people that are removed from the cross directly. Okay? And so they're sitting here, they only have to believe one thing. They have to have, with faith, believe that Jesus died and was resurrected for them. Whereas people before them actually knew Jesus. They saw him up on the cross, but not these people. And so imagine the pressure of living in that society, there's the word, living in that society and feeling the pressure to go back. Just like we talked about all these nostalgic things that sometimes we want to go back. We want to have those things. Imagine the pressure that they felt. Imagine the judgment from other people around them. What do you mean you're not doing sacrifices anymore? Imagine they might have been punished as a result of that. You're not conforming to the law of the Israelites and you are one. Why are you not doing that? And to have to give an answer for that. It's a very, very hard time. But fortunately for us, They held fast, and they embraced the new covenant. Verse 11 says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so there was a group of people that were continuing to live in the old covenant, that were continuing to live in the sacrifices, even after, remember the time where the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn top to bottom? Jamie talked about that a few weeks ago, and it was ripped from top to bottom. It was God providing a way to himself. He was providing access to himself. But in order for these people to continue doing sacrifices, to continue in the old way, I would say, logically, we have to assume one of two things. We have to assume that either someone went up there with a giant needle and stitched that baby back up, okay? This big split split uh, curtain in half, and they stitched it and repaired it, or they put up a new curtain. Because that's the only way to make sacrifices in the Old Covenant make sense. 
They had to do it. And so not, are they, not only are they actively living in ignorance, but they're choosing rebellion at that point. They're choosing to go back actively and say, I don't care that that curtain got split in half. I don't care. I liked it the old way. Because the old way was measurable. The old way was something that they could control. And so that's what they did. And we do the same thing, don't we? And so for about 40 years or so after the death of Jesus, this thing continued on and on and on it went. Let me read you this passage here in Galatians 3. I think this is an amazing passage because it puts all this in context of what the reality of their choice was. And here's what it is. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So now the law has become something that obviously points out the things that we do wrong, but now it's saying, you know what? If you're going to live under the law, you're going to have to live perfectly under the law for your entire life. Okay? So when you're a two-year-old and you're throwing tantrums, like you can't do that. Like How do you control that? We're just naturally sinners, right? And so we're naturally cursed under the law. And then it goes on in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. There it is, that holiness of the people, that positional perfection that God applies to us. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And here it is, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. And that is the reality and the belief in something is true rather than continue to live in something that is imperfect. It is the choice, the crossroads that we make, every single one of us that we make in life, that we can sit and we can choose to believe in something that is imperfect, which is the law and our good works, or we can shift and believe in the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. That's a huge, huge shift. And so those people continue to go. And the temptation for the Christians was to stay in the old way and to keep doing works and to do these things to try to get their approval from God. And Jesus was saying, no, it's all found in me. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like if you've lived in Petrie City long enough, uh, where is the traffic? 5474, like everybody knows where the traffic is. And there's uh, probably a lot of people that would blame it on that stoplight, right? That evil stoplight that just backs everything up. Or you can blame Chick-fil-A. But anyway, just kidding. But you blame the stoplight. And it would be like this. It would be like saying this. I just want to go back to where the stoplight did not exist. And that would solve all my problems. I want to go back to that. And then taking the next step to say, I'm just going to pretend that that stoplight does not exist. And I am going to go through it. It doesn't matter. It's not there. But we all know that that would be silly, right? We all know that there would be grave, grave consequences when somebody gets T-boned right there. And somebody's going to get hurt. It's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. But that's exactly what these people were doing. They were saying, I can see what you're talking about. I can see the curtain was split in half. I can see that Jesus... Maybe, maybe he was real, I don't know, but I'm going to 
actively choose to reject that and live my destructive life under the old covenant. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same principle. Which makes me kind of wonder if, uh, you guys have probably heard historically that the actual temple got destroyed. Uh, It actually got destroyed a few years after this book was written. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Which makes me wonder is, is that the reason that God allowed that to happen? The temple to be completely destroyed, that one rock was not on another, so that the people could not go back anymore. That they were faced with this moment in time that the temple is gone, it's in their face, and now it's like, you can choose to do nothing, or you can choose to pursue Jesus. And it makes me wonder if that's really the reason that that took place. So, moving right along, the sacrifice was done. And so in verse 12, it talks about this. It says, but when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. John 30 says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, so Jesus was up on the cross, right? And so instead of offering him a good drink as his final drink, it was kind of like just smacking him in the face. They give him sour wine, and his response is this, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And what he was talking about is the sacrifice that I am making in this moment for you is done. The rat race is done. We don't have to continue to do sacrifices year after year, day after day, because I have sacrificed my life that was perfect, blameless for you. It is finished. That is an amazing moment. And then it goes on to say that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, which means that he isn't running around like these priests are, right? You see the contrast between the two? The priests are constantly going, constantly going, constantly going. I've even read that it says there was no seats, there was no chairs in there for the priests to sit down and take a break because they were constantly going, constantly going. But Jesus is resting because he's done what it takes to satisfy the law, to satisfy the wrath of God upon sin, and to apply that salvation to the heart's of people. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And so this passage wraps up in these last few, um, few verses here, and it talks about uh, that the Holy Spirit kind of jumps in. It's an interesting thing that you kind of see God the Father, God the Son, and now you have God the Holy Spirit, all a part of what's happening here. And so verse uh, 14 is where we're at. And the Holy Spirit is really affirming this belief in Jesus, this belief in the truth. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect for the, forever those who are being made holy. Every single one of us should take this verse and stick it on a piece of paper and stick it in our cars or, or like write it on your hand or something like that because there's so much incredible truth in these verses. For first thing is that by the sacrifice, by the new covenant, we are positionally made perfect. We said that before. Second thing, under the new covenant, We are being made presently holy. So there's something happening in the life of believers. There's something happening in our heart as a result of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as a result of the sacrifice that Jesus has paid on our behalf and applied to our lives that changes us forever. 
And it's like this virus of sin, the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and begins pushing the sin out of our extremities. And so part of the Christian life is growing in holiness. Now, you probably all know somebody maybe who's been a Christ follower for like 70, 80, 90 years, and you're like, they don't do anything wrong at all. Like, I, I know people like that in my life. I, go, I don't see any sin in their lives. But if you ask them, they would say, absolutely, I'm the greatest of the sinners that there are. But I think we perceive people that way because God has been working in their life year after year after year doing this verse, making people presently holy, conforming them to the image of his son. That's a huge, huge deal. And the third thing from this passage is under the new covenant, we will be made someday permanently perfect and holy. There'll come a point in time when we are with God in heaven that everything that we hate about this world will be gone. Being sick, losing family members who die, depression, all these terrible things will be gone. Our bodies will be made perfect. There'll be no more death. And then we'll be remo- our sin nature will be removed. And there will be no more sin. There'll be no more temptation. That'll be a glorious and amazing day. That is something to look forward to. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying in this passage. to say we should embrace these things. Because these things are true. We should believe in them. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says... This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawful acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. A guy named Al Mohler put it this way. He said, a new covenant brings a new heart. A new covenant, believing that Jesus has paid for your sins, changes you completely from the inside out. The Holy Spirit affirms in this passage a few things, okay? It affirms that our lives will begin to expel sin, that will start to move toward holiness. That's a a given. Second thing, the Holy Spirit affirms that the law is now written on our hearts. This is a really important thing. So the law had been, at least the Ten Commandments, had been on stone tablets, right? And they were in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, right? So now that thing is busted wide open, and God's basically saying, I'm with you. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant with the stone tablets because the law has been written written on your heart. It's in you. It's a part of you now. So that's something that we discover outside of ourselves. It's a part of us when we become Christians. The third one here, the Holy Spirit affirms that God will remember our sin no longer. That is a truth that probably many people in this room need to hear. That God, in some way, will remember our sins no longer. I don't even know how it's possible. Think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, can choose to forget my sin. Can choose to forget your sin. That blows my mind. To think that God's love is so great that God would see the sacrifice of his son as so sufficient for me, so sufficient for you, that he would choose to forget our sin. 
That should be encouraging for us, right? That should be something that we should live life and go, you know what? Nothing's holding me back now. All these things that I used to do, that's in the rearview mirror. That's gone. Because God doesn't remember it, why should I? Let's move forward. Let's do these great things because I love Jesus. Fourth one here. I put five fingers up. Fourth one. The Holy Spirit affirms that sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And I think this is a key one too. There isn't a need for continued sacrifices for our sins. It's not necessary anymore. Some people believe that you can lose your salvation. Here's the problem that I have with that. When, it, when this passage says that sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary, what that communicates to me is once you come into a saving relationship with Jesus, when you say, you know what, I want your sacrifices to be applied to my life. I want to be in a relationship with you forever. You can't undo it. And if you could undo it, here's what it would be saying. It would be saying that I can do enough wrong to put me back into the old covenant. It's saying that the sufficiency of the the death and sacrifice of Jesus being the Lamb of God was not enough for me. And so it sticks me back in the old covenant, and then I have to re-engage the new covenant. And so I think the whole entire point of Jesus was to bring this connection to himself, this connection to God, to reconcile us to him and to say that we can undo it and then redo it and then undo it and then redo it and then undo it and then redo it. Doesn't that sound just like the old covenant? Doesn't that sound just like the old covenant of I sin, I perform sacrifices, I'm okay for a bit. I sin, I perform sacrifices, And this unending cycle of insufficient sacrifice, when this passage tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus is completely sufficient and adequate and complete for me. And so that should give us the ability to have rest. That should give us the ability to rest in that fact that his, his death and resurrection was so incredibly amazing and is so real in my life that I don't need to doubt it. And I can't do anything to mess it up. So I think the conclusion this morning or the question I have for all of us is this. Do I believe in the shadow or do I believe in the reality? Do I believe in the shadow of the Old Testament in this works-based thing Or do I believe in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf? You know, for the first 17 years of my life, I lived in camp number one, which was the old covenant. So I grew up Catholic. I I grew up believing that if I did uh, more good works than bad works, that somehow I would earn the favor of God. And there was never a time in the first 17 years of my life that I was assured of anything. It was always a life of fear my life was a, one of guilt. It was one of, I, if I did something wrong, I needed to rush to confession and, and confess my sins to the, to the priest, which is very similar to the sacrificial system. It's the old covenant. And the more time that goes by, it's funny, when I was 20, that seemed like such a huge part of my life. But now that I'm 45, that first 17 years of my life seem much smaller 
and much, much less significant of my story because primarily now my story is about the new covenant. It's about sitting on a bus, driving back from a youth trip when I'm 17 years old and praying and giving my life to Jesus and saying, I can't do this. I can't earn your favor. The old covenant doesn't work. I'm embracing your death and resurrection and payment of sins on my behalf. Thank you. That was the shift. And so some people in this room, that might be where you're at. You might be considering, going, oh, what in the world is this Jesus thing all about? And I hope it's clear to you. I hope you, you go away this morning going, that makes sense. But even more, here's what I would hope for you. I would hope that you would sit here before the service is over and you would talk to God and you would say, I'm tired of the rat race of trying to earn your favor. I embrace the gospel, the good news that you died for me and my life is yours. I hope that's what you do. Seriously, that would be the best Sunday service we could possibly have this morning if you would do that. For those of us that have been Christians for a short while or a long while, we have the same question that we can ask. Do I believe in the shadow or the reality? Do I want to go back nostalgically to the thing that I could control, right, that was measurable, or do I want to embrace the reality of the Jesus in my life? Is that it? Because sometimes as Christians, we kind of go back and we do good things for the wrong reasons. We pursue good works, and the reason is is that we somehow feel that God has upset at us. Or we somehow feel like we have something to earn with God. Or we somehow feel like we're just a bunch of control freaks and we just need to do things in order to make ourselves feel better. It's possible. And that's the shadow. But the reality, living in the reality, is to say, We pursue good works because we love Jesus and because Jesus loves us. And so we respond to that, not trying to earn anything more. Because here's the thing, Jesus will never love you more next week or next month than he does right now. There's not more to be done. There's not not like a Jesus plus, you know what I mean? It's not like Jesus, and then, oh, tomorrow, he loves me even more, and he loves me even more, because he died for me. He died for you. He paid for our sins completely, sufficiently, adequately, now and forever. And so there isn't more to be had. You have it all.